All right, take your Bible and turn to uh, John, or to John, turn to Romans. Romans chapter 9, that's where we're headed to. I have a few introductory thoughts and comments before we get there, but we returned last week, as you know, to our study in uh, Romans 9. It's a fascinating portion of Scripture. 9 through 11 really is one thought, uh, one unit of thought. Goes all, all goes together, deals with um, God's elect nation, Israel. And as I think I told you last time, but if not, I'll tell you now, there's no other nation on the face of the planet that has had such a special relationship uh, with God that Israel enjoyed. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Amos 3, verse 2, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day in a fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, 35 through uh, 37. So irrespective of Israel and her past behavior uh, of disobedience and idolatry, God links the perpetual existence uh, of the nation and his ongoing relationship with her to the sun, the moon, the stars, the foundation of the earth, establishing that relationship as one that will never come to an end. And while chapter 9 deals with the nation of Israel, especially it deals with the sovereignty of God dealing with that nation. At the beginning of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, he spoke about his call, that he was called as an apostle, that he was a bondservant of Christ, that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised through the prophets in the Old Testament scripture concerning his son who was born a descendant of David. He is establishing a, a Jewish link to the gospel. And then he spoke about God's call in his life to take the gospel to the Gentiles there at the beginning of Romans. Uh, but also in the book of Acts, Paul clearly uh, indicates that he was also called to bring the gospel to the sons of Israel. That's what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. To the sons of Israel, God had called him to bring the gospel. Now you remember after Paul's conversion, when he came to an understanding of, of who Jesus is as the Christ, he's God's promised Messiah, he began his ministry by first preaching in the synagogues. He preached to the Jews in the synagogue, this synagogue, that synagogue. He always started there when he moved from place to place. And he was passionately concerned with the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. And he was eager to uh, proclaim the truth and answer any kind of questions that he knew that they would have. In fact, near the end of uh, Romans, Romans 11, verse 26, uh, end of the section, it says, Paul, uh, in, in that section, uh, uh, asserts by divine authority that the Savior of the world comes from Zion. Now, the Savior of the world is a Jew. And, and ultimately, he says, all Israel will be saved, just as the prophet uh, uh, Isaiah had declared back in Isaiah chapter 59. In fact, early in his ministry, his earthly ministry, Jesus himself told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that salvation is from the Jews, that he himself was that promised uh, Jewish Messiah that would offer salvation not only to the Jews, but to all of mankind. But as opposition rose against Paul, he more and more focused on uh, the Gentiles and bringing to them the gospel, which many of them openly received. But at the same time, uh, assuring the Roman Gentile believers that it is inconceivable that God would ever reject or forget his people, the nation of Israel. 
Because that's really the question that's in the background when you come to these chapters that is lingering. If the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ offers salvation to all, to the Gentiles, then what's happened to Israel? Has Israel rejected God? Uh, Or have they been rejected by God? If salvation is from the Jews and if the gospel is for the Jew first, then why have most of the Jews at the time uh, rejected Jesus as the Christ? Why have they rejected the gospel? Why are most uh, Jews even in our day in unbelief? Uh, as, as they were in Paul's day. And Paul answers the question in these chapters 9, 10, and 11. And, and Israel's rejection and unbelief of the gospel, and here's kind of a high-level outline, and I'll go through it later, but, but so you won't have to write it all down now. But uh, Israel's rejection and unbelief is consistent with God's plan, God's promises, God's person, God's prophetic revelation, and God's prerequisite of faith. It is consistent with his plan, his promises, his person, his prophetic revelation, with his prerequisite of faith. I stole that outline from somebody. You might have a Bible in front of you that might even have that outline in it. All right? I don't know. I haven't looked. But it might be there. Now, again, remember the chief argument of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans is a defense of justification by faith alone. That's really what he's working through. And remember, at the time, Judaism had really descended into a works righteousness system. It was a system full of ritualism and legalisms and a system full of ceremonies, which in and of themselves have no merit, no saving merit before God. And, And the Gentile believers understood that. They didn't come out of that system, right? For them, the gospel is kind of fresh. So they're not coming out of that system, and they understand the idea of justification by faith alone. The Jews, on the other hand, when they hear this teaching of the gospel, they mistakenly conclude that the doctrine of justification by faith was somewhat of a new idea. It's a mistake. They mistakenly believe that it's somewhat of a new idea. It's valid for, uh, for Gentile onlys, or for, only for the Gentiles. But again, that was not. Because early on in the letter Paul sends to Romans, especially in chapters 2 through 5, you see that he shows that God never justified anybody, Jew or Gentile, not even Abraham, on the basis of anything other than God's grace. Right? God's grace made effectual through personal faith. Now, again, the, the, the Jewish believers in the context, they, they understand the, the rituals and works righteousness, again, is never a means of salvation. But since the Jewish people are still hanging on strongly to these incorrect views and traditions, Gentile believers were starting to believe mistakenly that somehow perhaps God was now done with Israel. And, and that thinking kind of, uh, I'm going to use this word, that, that thinking infects like a disease, a lot of the history of the church. Because that's not what this text teaches. So Paul writes, in part, Romans 9 to 11, to address and to correct that misunderstanding. That nobody stands before God on their own merit, not even the Jews, who again trusted in their descent from Abraham, who trusted in their good works. So in this section, again, 9 through 11, one unit of thought, uh, God says, or Paul says, that God has clearly declared he's not done with the nation of Israel. Romans 11, verse 1, I said then, has God rejected his people? God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or those whom he has set his love upon. It's true they've stumbled, right? It's true the nation of Israel stumbled, they've misunderstood the truth. 
but there's kind of come a day, a glorious day of reconciliation, a glorious day of restitution between God and the nation of Israel. And Paul asks this rhetorical question in chapter 11, verse 11. He says, then I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So he's saying Israel's rejection of the gospel and of Jesus, rejection of the gospel and rejection of Jesus as the Messiah has really opened the door of salvation to the Gentile nations. And one day, Israel's jealousy of the Gentiles will have a part in leading the nation back to her Savior, to returning the, to the nation back to her Savior through faith alone, again in the person of Jesus Christ alone, and again eventually receiving the Messiah that they rejected at his first coming, they'll be reconciled in the end unto God through him. Paul goes on in uh, Romans uh, 11 verse 12, he says, Now if their transgression be riches for the world, their failures and their uh, failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Again, that's just a, another way of saying God's not, not, not done with the nation of Israel. They have had favored status before God. Yes, that's true. Uh, and they will continue to have that status. Uh, that's not prevented God from, however, through their history as a nation, dealing with them uh, because of their sin, because of their idolatry, their rebellion. That has not prevented God from uh, disciplining the nation or from temporarily setting them aside, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five, until the fullness of the Gentiles is coming. And once that occurs, the fullness of the Gentiles, once that has occurred, the Lord says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There's going to come a day of restitution, a day of reconciliation, a day when the nation of Israel realizes that Jesus is their Messiah, the one whom they have been looking for. So what Romans 9 does, this portion of Scripture, again, while the the nation of Israel has been temporarily set aside because of their continued unbelief and rejection of Israel, God in His divine sovereignty, God in His great mercy and great grace promises He will preserve a remnant who will come to Christ. He'll preserve a remnant out of that nation that will come to faith in Christ. Because Romans 11 verse 29 says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I used a theological word last week to describe that very truth. Remember, it was immutability. Immutability, the fact that God never changes. And because that is true, we can count on the fact that all the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel throughout the entire Bible, He's going to fulfill them. He's going to fulfill all of His covenant promises to the nation. He'll never set them aside or cast them away forever. And we as Gentile believers, we need to know that. We need to know that. Because if God doesn't keep his promises to his chosen people, the nation of Israel, then how could any Gentile believer ever trust in God that he'll keep his promises to us? That is a huge issue that is behind the scenes underlying uh, the background of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Right? God's future plan with the nation of Israel, God's uh, purposes for the nation of Israel. Now, we look, come to these chapters and, and we see God is dealing with issue uh, with the issue of the nation of Israel, but the main subject in 9, 10, and 11 really is God, the personal God. 
You see God's sovereignty on display in chapter 9. You see the justice of God dealt with in great detail in chapter 10. And then chapter 11, you see the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God. And, and again, they're just tremendous chapters. All three of these go together. And, and I'm trying to work my way fast through this. Obviously, I have a difficult time working fast. Um, but we're trying to move somewhat faster through the material. So if you missed last week, you might want to go back and pick that up uh, on your own. So let's just go to the top of the chapter. Let me just kind of read through it to kind of pick up the context again and uh, see to begin with the great love that Paul has for his uh, brethren. Again, they don't understand the gospel. They don't see the glory of Christ. Uh, they, they persecuted Paul severely, yet he loved them eternally. And he was willing to take their place in eternal torment just to see them saved, exactly as Jesus Christ has done for us, right? Christ stood in our place took the punishment, the eternal wrath of God against our sins so that we might be forgiven and reconciled and have life. So Paul is very Christ-like in his love. So again, Paul begins with basically the tragic unbelief of the nation of Israel, then he declares his love for them. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were a curse separated from God for Christ, uh, from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. No question he's talking about Israel. It's who he came out of, that nation he came out of. And then he gives all the great advantages that the, the nation enjoyed as the children of Abraham, and again, having God's special favor set upon them. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory of the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, whose overall God blessed forever. Amen. So again, no other nation on the face of the planet had ever been as tremendously blessed by God as the nation of Israel. Yet they rejected the gospel, and they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. But God's but Israel's unbelief was consistent or is consistent with God's plan. It's consistent with his plan. It's consistent with his promises. Verse 6. <clears throat> Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He wants you to know the, the, the word of God hasn't fallen off. God hasn't changed his mind. God hasn't removed or transferred any of his promises or any of his blessings to the nation of Israel. But God makes distinctions amongst men in his sovereignty. God makes distinctions amongst men. Verse 6 continues, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendant, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. So I told you this last time, but God in his sovereignty chose to save Abram. That was his name at the time, right? He chose to save Abram out of Ur the Chaldees from worshiping the, the, the moon and, and uh, stones and rocks, right? Now, God could have left him there in Ur of the Chaldees in his unbelief, but God chose him, and God chose to bless him, and by choosing to put his electing love on the person of Abram or Abraham, he chose to pass over others. Abram was his man. And God chose to promise, to, uh, chose that his promised blessings to Abraham would come not through his firstborn, not through Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael, but the covenant promises that God made with, the, with uh, Abraham would come through his offspring with Sarah, and that is Isaac. So God sovereignly chose Abraham, God sovereignly chose Isaac, and passed over Ishmael. Verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, for this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. 
So again, Israel's uh, unbelief doesn't catch God off guard whatsoever. Because not all Israel is Israel in the saving sense or in the elect sense. It's God who chooses sovereignly to save. Uh, again, God chose Isaac to be the bearer of the covenant. Uh, God made a uh, made that that God made between Himself and Abraham. God God chose Isaac to be the bearer of the covenant. It's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So it's 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 God's sovereign choice on display. He chooses to pass on to the blessings of the covenant that He made again with Abraham through Isaac, not through any of the other children. So true Israel, or saved Israel, or believing Israel, or elect Israel, if you will, is going to be identified more as a remnant, a numerical minority based again on God's sovereign choice. And, and to press that reality home, that issue home, Paul gives two illustrations to demonstrate the sovereignty of God in his electing grace with the offspring of Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and the twins that come from her, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said, verse 12, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So again, completely apart from any kind of human consideration or merit, contrary to the custom of the day, contrary to the subjective feelings that one might have for what we might consider fairness, God, by his sovereign choice alone, it was said of her, the older will serve the younger, and just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we spoke a lot last time, or I spoke a lot last time on this issue, how difficult that uh, statement is. You can go back and listen to the latter part of last week's uh, sermon and pick that up if you want more information on that. But when you read first blush, you read verse 13, we cringe, right? We cringe. Because it doesn't seemingly make sense in our view of God's impartiality. But, But God is perfectly right to hate sin. The Bible repeatedly says, listen, there is none righteous. Let's take a test. How many are righteous? None. Not one, right? All are under sin. God is not responsible for the predicament that man finds himself in. Men joined in the cosmic rebellion against God. And men, all men, justly deserve God's eternal condemnation and God's eternal wrath. Now, I said last time, when you look at the lives, the history of the lives of these uh, descendants from these men, you look at the descendants of Esau, they give clear evidence that the descendants rejected God. And God's statement that Esau would serve his younger brother extends really to his offspring. It's really the line, because there's no biblical record that Esau was personally subservient uh, to Jacob when they were both alive. But down the line, there's a lot of evidence that the, uh, the nation of Edom, which descended from Esau, was in direct or indirect subservience and uh, with uh, conflict with the nation of Israel, which again comes from Jacob, Jacob whose name is later changed by God to Israel. Now Jacob, we know he's not exactly your uh, pristine individual, right? He's uh, somewhat of a rascal, he's a deceiver, but God chooses uh, uh, Jacob and God sovereignly overrules uh, Jacob's personality and his sin, his deception, and he fulfills his own divine purposes through that man. And again, we know that Jacob's own sin brought a lot of problems and painful situations into Jacob's lives and others around him. But Jacob's sin didn't cancel out God's promises in the least degree. 
So again, in the book of Genesis, you look, there's really no uh, mention of divine hatred for Esau himself. If you go a little bit uh, later into the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah, Obadiah in chapter 10, in that book, uh, it declares that God hated Esau, but that book's written a thousand years after Esau lived. So I think the most reasonable interpretation of the prophet's statement seems to indicate the Lord's hatred against Esau's idolatrous descendants. In the same way the love that the Lord had for Jacob refers to Jacob's descendants, who again all, all uh, often were rebellious and sometimes idolatrous. Yet God sovereignly elected a people that came through him. And through that line would come the world's redeemer, right? Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is from Israel, from, from Jacob. So God sovereignly elects Abram or Abraham out of all the men of the world, and he is the one who's going to receive the blessing that from his line is going to come the Redeemer, the the Messiah. And God sovereignly chose and elected Isaac, not Ishmael, to be the bearer of the covenant blessings that God made with Abraham. And in the wisdom of God, God chose Jacob, and he rejected Esau. Again, God demonstrating his wisdom, God demonstrating his sovereign choice. And again, through the loins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come again elect an elect, redeemed remnant of Jews. And not all who had come from the, their loins would believe. Many would remain in unbelief. Therefore, because of their unbelief, they would face eternal consequences of their own sin and rebellion. But those whom God sovereignly chose would be the recipients of God's great grace and God's rich mercy. So again, uh, the sovereignty of God really is on display in this chapter. The sovereignty of God in the election of sinners. And it's for all sinners, right? Whether it be Jew or Gentile, it's the sovereignty of God on display. And that's what Paul's basically talking about here. He, he's introducing this idea of distinguishing grace, uh, the sovereign election of God. Now, because we have a mind that's negatively affected by the fall, even as redeemed individuals, we tend to think we're the issue everywhere, all the times, in all things, right? I tell you that all the time. We're, we're too subjective. We think the world begins and ends with us. But the truth is, listen, God is the issue always. God is the issue always. And God has not only created a humanity uh, and directed our past, but God's the one who shaped our future, the psalmist says in, in one, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God's in charge. Now again, Israel's current uh, state of unbelief in the, in the context of the story is consistent with God's plan. Because again, God chooses who will be, who will be saved. God's not under obligation to save anyone. God saves by what? Grace alone. So Israel's unbelief is consistent with his plan. Israel's current unbelief is consistent with his promises, and it's consistent with his person. And again, it upholds God's perfect character. So Paul anticipates there's going to be a question coming in behind the question. The, uh, the fact the entire paragraph uh, is kind of questioning one issue, that's God's fairness. If God only chooses uh, some... Uh, 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 for salvation and makes promises to some and not others, then people naturally in their fallen state come and say God is unfair. God is unfair. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Meganoito is the word. No, 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 no. I mean, literally like a thousand times over. It's never ending, right? Natural, the natural human response uh, to the, this idea is to charge God with injustice, and the very idea is blasphemous. 
And Paul, by asking this rhetorical question, says we have absolutely no right to accuse God of injustice because everything God does is right. Everything God does is just. Because God has no capacity for unrighteousness. God has no capacity for injustice. Now, as he previously did, in response to the accusation that God's sovereign election is unfair, Paul's going to put a couple more examples on the table here. He's going to cite two other texts from the Old Testament that clearly state otherwise, that clearly state that God is not unfair. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, as the sovereign of the universe, God can have mercy on whomever he chooses. God, as the sovereign of the universe, can have compassion on whomever he chooses. And listen, as the sovereign of the universe, he can choose to save whomever he chooses to save. Now, the two words mercy and compassion are, in essence, synonyms, but mercy really refers primarily to the action where compassion kind of refers more to the feeling, uh, the disposition behind the action. And really, instead of trying to explain divine sovereignty, the realm of uh, election in terms of human logic, which a fallen human mind can't understand anyway, nor will it accept, Paul just declares the truth, God's truth. Verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's not sinful men who initiate, choose, or pursue God's mercy. Salvation is never initiated by human choice or merit. Jonah 2.9, you should have that underneath the other verse I told you to tattoo on your forehead. Tattoo this one on your forehead. Salvation is of the Lord. That's where it begins. Salvation is of the Lord. Mercy always begins with God. Mercy always begins in God's sovereign, gracious, eternal will. Now, obviously, we live in a time in modern evangelicalism where the word has been so abused and so neglected, the vast majority of people believe that man's so-called, quote-unquote, free will is above the sovereignty of God in the realm of salvation. I love that song we sing. That song we just sang would be aghast in a vast majority of congregations because they have sat under such poor teaching. They have been so abused by the people in the pulpit telling them things that are not true biblically. And and again, in modern evangelicalism, we have such a misunderstanding of the Word of God. We wrongly believe that within ourselves, we have the ability within ourselves to quote-unquote make decisions for or against the Lord. It's our own sovereign free will. It's our own sovereign choice, so-called. We think that wrongly, again, we think wrongly, that is the origin of our salvation. But the Bible says, on the contrary, the Bible says salvation is of the Lord. God's the origin of our salvation. Salvation is of Him, from Him, and Him alone. Again, the Bible says we've all sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. Listen, just by casual observation, dead things can't make choices. Dead things can't respond. And God is sovereign over the realm of salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So God is under compulsion or not under compulsion. He's under no obligation to redeem or save anyone. Salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace for the express purpose to give him glory. And again, no man is ever saved by any works, any kind of self-effort. 
No man is ever saved on the basis of any redeeming personal characteristics. All men are saved, listen, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, period. Exclamation mark. Close the book. Sit down, right? That's how men are saved. And God, and, and God alone is God. Everything God does by very definition is right. Everything God does by very definition is just. He, he, needs, he doesn't need your approval or my approval. He, he doesn't need, uh, he needs absolutely no justification for anything that he does. Again, including calling some to salvation and passing over others. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, and mercy is a gift. And mercy is given by the choice of the giver, not the receiver. Mercy is a gift that can't be earned through effort. And again, God is sovereign of the universe. He's the Lord of the universe. He has the right to choose whom he chooses to bestow mercy upon. Jesus, you might remember in John chapter 6, verse 44, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, some of you are familiar with the Bible teacher who's passed away a number of years ago, but S. Lewis Johnson out of, out of Dallas in that area. S. Lewis Johnson has a great illustration. No one can come to me. This is the words of Christ. No one can come to me unless the Father who uh, sent me draws him. And S. Lewis Johnson's illustration is this. He says, for a moment, stop and think that you're in the synagogue and Jesus is speaking and he says, says those very words. No one can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. Here's Lewis's, S. Lewis Johnson's question. Would you like to stand up in the meeting and say that, but wait a minute, I have free will. I can of myself make the choice to come. With Jesus saying those words that he just said. S. Lewis Johnson says, you see what a contradiction of the Word of God that is. It's not only a contradiction of the Word of God, but it's a contradiction of grace. Because when we say our salvation is because of our own, or is of ourselves as well as of God, then it's a serious, uh, serious part about that is it's a contradiction of grace. Grace is unmerited favor, right? And God's kindness, uh, mercy, unmerited favor. God is the giver of mercy. God is the, the bestower of grace. Men don't make that choice. Nobody can come to me. Unless the Father draws. You see what a a messed up hash we are in modern evangelicalism. Again, put yourself in the context of the story and go into the synagogue and tell Jesus, well, you know what, I think you got it wrong. I chose you. Right? The audacity. And if we can figure it out, if we can bring ourselves up from the dead spiritually and understand all spiritual truth, if salvation is part of us and then part of God, then it's no longer grace. Again, grace being God's unmerited favor. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, Paul says in Romans 11, verse 6. All our sin has earned us is just condemnation and wrath. And instead of giving us what we deserve, God in His grace has provided us a way out, a way of escape. Not by our own effort, but by way of a substitute. Your forehead's going to be full, but tattoo this one on your forehead too. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how, that's our way of escape is through Christ. 
We're called to repent. We're called to believe the gospel, but we can't do that because we're dead in trespasses and sins. And again, dead things can't respond to anything, let alone can unrighteous people or unrighteousness respond to that one who is righteous. And God's not responsible for our condition of needing salvation any more than God is responsible for our inability to repent and believe. Because our inability to respond to the gospel is a self-acquired inability because of our own sin. Verse 14 again, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there may never be. So if there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, if there's nothing that we can do because we're dead in trespasses and sins, uh, unable to respond, then how can God judge us? It's just not fair. Wrong. Not only is it fair if God judges, judges us, but it's what? Just. It's justice. Punishment and justice for our sin. That's, that's justice. That's fair. Forgiveness, on the other hand, is merciful. Again, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now he's going to give a second illustration to kind of back that up. He's going to uh, uh, help us continue to understand this truth. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. Through the whole earth. So then, uh, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Wow, I don't know. I mean, can God do that? Can he do it? Can, can Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He hardens whom he desires to harden. I mean, again, that's just an absolute declaration of divine sovereignty. Now, again, reading the words are not difficult. Accepting what the Word of God has to say sometimes is the difficult part. It does not say there in that text that I just read that God made Pharaoh a sinner. God makes no man a sinner because sinners are all, all, all men are sinners by what? Birth. Right? All men are sinners by birth, by choice, by divine declaration. The truth of the matter, when uh, Paul is using uh, Moses and Pharaoh as an example, both of those guys were sinners. Moses and Pharaoh here in the illustration really is a study in contrast. Both these men, listen, they were raised in the same manner. They're, la- they're raised in the same pagan household in Egypt. Both educated under the same system. Both enjoyed the same standard of living that exceeded most of the common people around them. But their lives went a different path when God chose to intervene in the life of one of them, that being Moses. Moses, you might remember, was guilty of murder. But God took Moses and he put him into the wilderness for 40 years. And in those 40 years, he transformed his character. Pharaoh, on the other hand, continued in his privileged existence in Egypt and became the sovereign over that nation. Uh, Pharaoh didn't uh, endure the humiliation of becoming a fugitive and the, the humiliation of becoming an itinerant shepherd in the wilderness like Moses did. The two men spend 40 years apart. Then God sovereignly brings them back together again face to face. And Moses comes representing God, demanding the, uh, the release of the, of the Israelites. But Pharaoh refused, claiming that he had the right of the sovereign over them, over the nation of Israel. One writer says this. He says, at that moment... The Lord could have batted an eyelash and reduced Egypt to a piece of lint on the page of history. Instead, he responded with a series of afflictions, which gradually increased in severity his stated purpose to show that that my power in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. 
to show you my power in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. It says that in Exodus 9, verse 16. Now, I'll give you a little bit of back, back story, a little bit of side note. You, you can read that later, Exodus chapter 5. Uh, um, uh, Pharaoh makes a critical mistake. He makes a critical mistake. Exodus 5, 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Not a good one. Not a good direction. I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Double down, not good. Don't go there. Critical mistake. The writer says this. He continues on. He says, Pharaoh dedicated himself to evil in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. This was Pharaoh's personal choice. He chose evil. God did not choose it for him. However, the Lord did harden him, that is, solidify his resolve to pursue evil deeply embedded in his heart. And the Lord was completely righteous in doing so. He does not owe grace to anyone. Therefore, he, has no less, he was no less just to allow Pharaoh to remain in his chosen evil and to suffer the consequences of it. Moreover, the Lord turned Pharaoh's evil into an opportunity to assert his own sovereign claim over the Israelites and to demonstrate his power to triumph over evil. I think we talked about that this morning at the cross, right? God's the sovereign. I raised you up to show my power in order to proclaim my name throughout all of the earth. The events of uh, Pharaoh and, uh, and his wickedness, the events of the cross, God's sovereign. Right? So God hardened his heart. There's a, a saying, you probably heard it before, very helpful, great picture illustration. It says the same sun, S-U-N, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. Right? The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. The issue is God's sovereign, period, exclamation point. God's sovereign over everything. God's sovereign over the realm of salvation. God was gracious in intervening in the lives of both men, giving them both ample opportunities to humble themselves and to accept God's sovereignty. And the lives of the two men demonstrate God's justice in responding according to man's own, the, the man's own choice. You go, what are you talking about? Well, God extended grace to Pharaoh, I've read the story. He, he extended grace to him at least 10 times. He, he gave him many opportunities to repent of his sin. Grace upon grace. We go, where? Plague, wait. Plague, wait. Plague, wait. Many opportunities. Grace upon grace, but Pharaoh never took those opportunities. Therefore, in the justice of God, he deserves all the credit for the salvation of Moses. And in the person of Pharaoh, God is just in condemning him because of his own evil. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Uh, again, Paul anticipates this line of uh, reasoning, this argument. If it's God who makes the choice and the sovereign mercy on who he saves, with God who hardens whom he chooses to harden, how can he possibly judge any of us, right? That's natural, fallen, wicked man's uh, human wisdom. If God has mercy on whom he desires, harden whom he desires, again, verse 19, you'll say to me, then why does he still find fault, right? He anticipates that argument for who resists his will. Listen, that is a dishonest question asked from a rebellious heart. It's a dishonest question asked from a rebellious heart. It's evident that anybody who asks this kind of question really isn't seeking God's truth, but rather they're seeking self-justification. They're trying to excuse their own sinfulness their own unbelief, their own spiritual rebellion. They're trying to accuse God of injustice. How can you 
hold us responsible for our unbelief and our sin. Again, it's a wicked, human, rebellious heart that's challenging God's justice and God's righteousness. I'll tell you, God holds man responsible for his wickedness and evil and his lostness because man is responsible for his wickedness, his evil, and his lostness, right? God's not responsible for that. Men are. And again, for a fallen man to stand up in the place and try to judge God or, or to only believe what fits fallen man's preconceived ideas of right and wrong, of justice and injustice, again, that's absolute wickedness on the part of man. For fallen man to judge the holy God by finite sin-stained standards. God's wisdom is the perfect standard. God's standard is the perfect wisdom. And everything that God does, again, by very definition is right. And he is the perfect standard of justice. He, God, is the perfect standard of righteousness. If God determined to grant salvation to some sinners by grace alone, and God determined to save some sinners because of their own um, determined that some sinners out of their own sin and unbelief he would pass them over and leave them in their sin because every sinner every person born in the world deserves nothing but god's condemnation and wrath and eternity in hell if god would exercise justice then no one would be saved therefore it's hardly unjust according to god's standard of justice and his grace if he chooses to elect some sinners to salvation right what do we all deserve condemnation it's not unjust if god chooses to save if god chooses to grant mercy to some of the people who are all in rebellion against him so then he has mercy on whom he desires he hardens whom he desires you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who resists his will verse 20 on the contrary who are you O man who answers back to god so again, here's sinful, rebellious man questioning God's integrity, questioning God himself. Sinful, rebellious, lost man seeking to justify himself in his own sin. And listen, just bottom line is no man has the right to put God on trial. No man has the right to bring God to trial. And I tell you what, Paul doesn't even necessarily answer the question. He just repels the suggestion that there's any kind of unrighteousness in God. Again, God has mercy on whom he has his mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. And we don't understand everything. We don't understand everything, but we do know is that God in heaven is just, right? God in heaven is just. God in heaven is loving. God in heaven is merciful. God in heaven is kind. And listen, we do know that people who need mercy don't have any rights. People who need mercy don't have rights. We acknowledge on one level the doctrine of sovereign election, predestination. I mean, they're difficult for us to comprehend in our fallen minds. Even though we're deemed, we are redeemed, our human understanding is limited. Therefore, sincere questions about God's sovereign election and God's predestination sometimes ultimately go unanswered. And we accept the doctrines by faith, acknowledge them to be true because God has revealed them to us in his word. Therefore, they are true. I think about all those guys that I've listened to over the years that have stand up and, and rail against the doctrine of election and saying it's a heresy, it's an unbiblical teaching. I think to myself, you should be quiet because you're going to face a greater judgment for your rebellion against God because you speak of those things that you don't know. And that's why the Bible says not let many of you be teachers. You better make sure you get it right if you stand up and say, I'm representing God, because God's going to hold us accountable. And again, we know that we deserve only God's condemnation. 
But God, for his own sovereign purposes, he has elected us who have repented and believed to be his children. Again, he brought us uh, uh, to faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand absolutely always amazed by his grace, right? We stand amazed at his kindness towards us, and that's always. That's why we should always be what? Joyful. Why would God choose to save me? I don't know. Out of his kindness, he has. And I stand amazed at his grace and his kindness to me all the time. Again, verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The truth is, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to question the rulers. blasphemy to question God's right to hold men accountable. The creature has no right to question the creator. Insignificance has no right to answer back to greatness. Fool and fallish, irrational, arrogant man has no right to question God, to do whatever God wants to do with his creation. God's the sovereign. God's the sovereign creator. He has the right to do with his creation whatever he chooses. God does not answer to men. So again, verse 20 continues, The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? It's uh, the, the next verse, verse 21, that goes on with that thought is really an appeal to the Old Testament. Here's an illustration that's found several times with this thought. The molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Verse 21 or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? It's an analogy out of the Old Testament. Isaiah used it. Jeremiah used it. Isaiah 29, verse 16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? What is made should That which is made should say to its maker, He did not make me, or that which is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthen vessel, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Isaiah 64, verse 8, O Lord, you are the father, we are the clay, thou art the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Jeremiah used the same kind of illustration out of Jeremiah 18, verse 3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on a wheel, But that vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled by the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, and it it pleased the potter to make. Uh, Then the the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Can Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In verse 21, does not the potter have the right? Does not the potter have the right, the power, the authority to act over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And the answer is yes. The sovereign of the universe can do whatever he wants to do. And he does indeed have that power to act. He has that authority. But you need to look very carefully to make sure you understand what that verse that I just read doesn't say. It doesn't say he made one vessel for honorable or noble use and then he made the other vessel for destruction. It doesn't say that. What he's saying by using this analogy of the clay is that from the same lump of clay, from the same mass of wicked clay, the potter has the right to do what he wants to over that mass of of, uh, wicked clay. He he could allow the entire uh, lump to be of common use, uh, he, or, or he could take it and, and divide it up. But the, the potter has, to, has the, the right to make the decision to take of that wicked, sinful lump and do what he wants to do with that. 
He could make it into a, a, just a common vessel, which would use for common household things when they didn't have indoor plumbing. How's that? Or he could make it a vessel of honorable use. That's his prerogative. Again, God's under no obligation to anyone. All sinners have forfeited every right to God for mercy. Therefore, it's within the sovereign plan and purposes of God to do whatever he wants to do with the entire mass of wicked clay. So he's not saying here that the sovereign as the potter has the right to make some clay sinful and wicked. He's not saying that. Because the entire mass, the entire clay in the analogy is already what? Fouled. It's already wicked. And God's not the creator of evil. James 1.13, let no one say he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God is not the author of evil. So when Paul asks the question in verse 22, uh, or asks a question in verse 22 to try to help us see these truths uh, that are just marvelous truth, he sets again distinctions uh, forth, uh, the declaration of God's treatment of men, uh, both the wicked and the righteous, and he does that in verses 23 and 24. So this is a, a traumatic, uh, tremendously fascinating section, uh, kind of a conclusion of this section of, uh, of uh, um, the book of Romans. And here's what you're going to see is five attributes in verse 22. Five attributes of God that declare who God is. You're going to see his wrath, his power, his glory, his mercy, his patience. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So again, God is God. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He has the right to glorify himself however he chooses. What if God, although willing, and the word idea, there, the, the idea behind the word kind of carries the idea of he's determined. What if God determined intentionally to demonstrate or to manifest or to put on display to show, prove, however you'd like to say it? What if God intentionally did to demonstrate his... Uh, 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 what if God... Uh, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known? Right? God can put himself on display however he chooses to put himself on display. It's okay for God to do that because he's God. He's just as glorified in demonstrating his wrath as he is in demonstrating his mercy. And God has the right as the sovereign to make his power known. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now again, God is glorified in the destruction, or the, God is glorified in the demonstration of his wrath as he demonstrates, or as he pours out his wrath, his righteous anger towards a rebellious sinner. God puts himself on display when he does that. He's glorified in making his power known. He's glorified in making his power known in judgment. He's glorified in making his power known in punishment of sin. And again, God is God. God's the only one in the universe who is, uh, deserves to be glorified. And every creature, listen to me, every creature is going to bring God glory, either as objects of mercy or objects of God's wrath. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And you need to notice very carefully what this says and what it doesn't say. What it says and what it does not say. Because there's a lot of nonsense when you come to this verse, this portion of the verse. The text does not say, as some falsely report, that God prepared these vessels of wrath for destruction. It doesn't say that. God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The word prepared there in that phrase, in that phrase vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in the Greek is in the passive. 
which means that God's not the subject doing the preparation. God's not the subject doing the preparation to make them vessels of wrath. Those who are the vessels of wrath, they themselves are the ones that are doing the preparation work. Absolutely clear by the passive tense voice. They themselves, by their rejection of God, they themselves, by their embracing sin, they themselves, by embracing wickedness, they themselves have made themselves vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They themselves, by their own sin, have placed themselves in a position to have God glorified through them by the demonstration of his power by judging them according to their sin. Verse 22 again says that God has endured with much patience these self-prepared vessels of wrath that are headed for destruction. Now, what does that phrase mean, endured with much patience? Now, you can either kind of just listen to me or you can turn back if you want, but I'm going to just read a paragraph, excuse me, out of Romans chapter 2. So if you want to look back there, you can. But Romans chapter 2, Paul's writing about people, writing to people of God's righteousness and his judgment. Again, a certain group of people who consider themselves better than other people. But they're doing the very same thing that they don't approve of in others. Romans uh, chapter 2. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance, here it is, with impatience, not knowing that, God, that the kindness of God leads to, you, leads to you to repentance? So again, patience just means God's long-suffering, God's slowness to avenge wrongs. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you underestimate? Do you treat with contempt God's kindness, God's desire to see you be saved, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So God's patience means that God holds back what is deserved. God leaves time, a space, for repentance to occur. Plague, space. Plague, space. Plague, space. Right? Same thing in the, in the book of Revelation. You'll see a judgment and a pause. A judgment and a pause. A judgment and a pause. It's a time of God's patience for repentance. Because the truth is destruction is coming upon those who prepared themselves as vessels of wrath. Look at verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteousness of the judgment of God. Again, God has endured with much patience sinners. He has held back his coming wrath in order that men might repent and be saved. But for those, again, verse 4, who think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, verse 5 again, because of the stubbornness and unrepentance of their heart, they're storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Judgment's coming. God's patience, or God is patient with men, but there's a day of righteous judgment coming. Go back to, to Romans 9, <clears throat> because that's what Paul, that's the, the, the point Paul's making here in verse 22. Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, 
endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So why did God endure with much patience vessels of wrath? Verse 23, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which here it is, he prepared beforehand for glory. Now prepared, the word prepared there in verse 23, same word in verse 22. But here in verse 23, it's in the active voice. It's in the active voice. The one doing the preparation work on the vessels of mercy is God. He's the subject. Vessels of wrath are unbelievers. And they have prepared themselves by their own rejection of God. Because again, God makes no man a sinner. Men are who they are naturally, right? Sinful sinners. And left to their own, unless they repent and believe, they're headed for eternal punishment, a place called hell. Again, a place prepared for the devil and his angels, a place men should not be because God himself has provided a way of escape. Vessels of mercy, on the other hand, are believers, and they've been prepared by God himself to be the special object, listen, of his distinguishing grace. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his power to make his demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, verse 23, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. So again, God is glorified by all men. Some men will reject him, and they have prepared themselves to stay in their own sin. And they'll face the eternal consequences for the rebellion against the Most High God. Other men, listen to me, other men who are equally responsible and equally guilty before God for their sin, for the rebellion against the Most High God, have been made by God himself vessels of mercy. Prepared beforehand for glory. In order that God might make known the riches of his glory. Right? Salvation, obviously, we're, again, so self-centered, so self-focused. We get on, I get, I get, I'm, I'm saved, and this is what it's for me. It's true. Salvation is for the benefit of mankind, but more so, uh, salvation is really an opportunity for God to declare the glory of his grace. Salvation of men is really an opportunity for God to put on his grace, his kindness uh, on display. It's an opportunity for him to put himself on display as the compassionate, gracious, uh, merciful Savior that he is. Because the Bible repeatedly says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He, he bids all men to come to him. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy, eat. Come uh, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that you or your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and our God will have abundant, and our God, and to our God, He will abundantly pardon. I mean, the Bible is very clear. If you want salvation, come get it. Absolutely free. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. <clears throat> and the offer of the gospel goes out to all men, freely, genuinely. Repent and live. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters without money. Come buy and eat. So the gospel goes freely to all men to repent. Those who reject the gospel offer will be dealt with in justice. Those who flee to the mercy of God in Christ will be what? Saved. They'll be saved. Those who reject the gospel, reject Christ, are going to be dealt with justly. Those who flee to the mercy of God in Christ will be saved. 
So God's sovereignty and his declaration of mercy requires a response from you. You who are in the room, you who are listening. You either embrace it by faith or you reject it. And God is patient for a reason that men might come to faith and repentance, but his patience again will not endure forever. Judgment is coming. And one day all accounts are going to be settled and God's going to be glorified. And God is going to remove all sin and all sinners from this earth and from this universe. Again, this most uh, remarkable truth, I think, of the sovereign election of God is not given to confuse us, but it's really given for us to rejoice in. Because it's a message of hope. It's an offer of peace, an offer of reconciliation uh, between God and men. And God says to all men, come. Now, I can't, all, I can't reconcile all the aspects of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. <clears throat> I've told you before, they're two, like, two twer- parallel lines of truth. There's some, sometimes there's an irreconcilable tension in the Scripture. I just live with it. We just simply declare what the Bible says to be true, and we just believe what God says in His Word to be true, and we respond accordingly. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Look at verse 24. Even us. Even us whom he's called not from among the Jews, but from among the Gentiles. It's a tremendous portion of Scripture, isn't it? It's tremendous. It's uh, certainly about our wonderful Lord and Savior and his mercy, his compassion, his desire to be compassionate and gracious to men. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this section of Scripture puts you completely on display. Thankful for your mercy and grace to us through Christ. Thank you for our study tonight, this morning. Thank you for just having a great time together in your word. And we do stand amazed at your grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for loving us, calling us, sending the person of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand these truths. And may we rejoice in you, our God, and Christ our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.